Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your goodness towards us in Jesus. We thank you for the way that you love us so well. And I pray that your love would change us and that your love would, would um, produce such a change within us that we would love you in return and that we would love one another in light of your love. God, I pray that you would give us grace to receive your word this morning. I pray that your word would be instructive. I pray that your word would be, uh, that your word would inflame our affections for you and for your purposes in this world. God, we love you. We thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, John Calvin uh, was a catalyst in the Protestant Reformation back in the 20th century. And he he once described creation as a theater. He said that creation is a theater designed to reflect the glory of God, meaning that you and I can walk outside and we can see the beauty of God's creation and we, can, we should see something about God's glory as our creator. We should see something about his power. We should see something about his wisdom in the created order. And of course, as we've been journeying through the book of Genesis, you know, in Genesis chapter one, we kind of witnessed the construction of that tabernacle or of that theater as God was putting that theater in place to display his glory as our creator. But here in Genesis chapter two, we're going to see a different theater being constructed, a new kind of theater, because in our passage this morning, we're going to see that not only is God to be glorified as our creator, but God is to be glorified as our redeemer. And so we're going to see that in the construction of a new theater here in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. And this theater is what we refer to as marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, marriage is taken up by Paul and he, and he ties marriage to the language of Genesis chapter 2. Listen to, what he, listen to what he says. He quotes, again, Genesis 2.24 and makes this stunning pronouncement about marriage saying, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then he goes on. This mystery is profound. Marriage is a profound mystery, not because it's perplexing and hard. Uh, it is a profound mystery in what it represents and how God designed the role that God designed marriage to play in the world. And then Paul would go on to clarify, you're not left in the dark about what this mystery is. He says, and I'm saying that that mystery, the mystery of marriage, refers to Christ and his church. That there is something about marriage as God designs it in Genesis chapter 2. That is to serve as a theater displaying the glory of God's redeeming activity. Displaying the glory of God's relationship between, the relationship shared between Christ and his church. And so what you find in these words is Paul is elevating marriage, isn't he? He's bringing our, he's elevating our eyes so that we can see marriage as God originally intended, as a living illustration of the gospel, designed it for that purpose. And that is a much more noble purpose and a much more dignifying design than what we are led to believe about marriage in our culture. You know, there are many objections to marriage. People do not think highly of marriage nowadays. Many people object to marriage for many reasons. For example, there are some who aren't interested in marriage because they think that a monogamous relationship with one person for the rest of your life is a boring way to live. This is why Chris Rock would say what he said in his stand-up routine. Do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? Pick your poison. It's a negative slant on marriage. But then he goes on to say, or not him, but another objection is that marriage is too risky. 
There are some who've seen divorce happen so much and it's such a hard relationship to be in that close proximity with another sinner like us that marriage is too difficult, therefore it's too risky. We can get hurt in marriage. So some uh, avoid it altogether, but then others just decide to kind of kind of pilot the car a little bit through cohabitation. They say, okay, well, we're not, I don't know if we want to take the risk of marriage. So let's just move in together and practice a little bit. Let's see if we're really compatible. So let's step into that close proximity and let's engage in some marital activities um, before actually getting married. And, and those who want to kind of test drive that relationship, it's interesting is that when you look at the studies about marriage and divorce rates, divorce rates are actually higher among those who cohabitate before actually getting into the covenant of marriage than those who just go right into it. Uh, that te- the test drive doesn't produce healthy marriages and it doesn't produce, in every case, a lasting marriage. But then there are others who say, I don't want to get married, married because marriage is too distracting. That, then I will be obligated to another person and then my attention won't be able to be given fully to my job and my career ambitions. So I'm not interested in marriage because it's a distraction to what I really want to do and what I really want to accomplish in life. But then there are others who draw this faulty assumption that marriage is too financially draining. I don't want to get married because I'm going to make my money and I'm going to hold on to my money. I don't want to share that with another person. I don't want to provide for other people. I want to use my money for me. But this too is a faulty assumption. And given, given another study called The Surprising Economic Benefits of Marriage, it revealed that individuals who were continually married had a 75% more, had 75% more wealth at retirement than those who never married or divorced and didn't remarry. So it's a faulty assumption, but it is assumption nonetheless. It is an objection to marriage, that marriage is financially draining. But then there are others who just write it off as being unnecessary. I don't need a piece of paper to, to prove my love to another human being. I don't need the social contract authorized by our government to prove my love to another. So I'm just going to ignore that and we'll just do our thing and we'll relate to one another in these ways without the, the, the intrusion of accountability from outside of us. So there are some who say it's unnecessary. But then there are others who say, well, marriage is just an archaic institution. It's a traditional cultural agreement between two people, and it's not really that uh, important. And so they write it off as something archaic or too traditional or culturally binding. But what I want us to see as we step into Genesis chapter 2 is that marriage is, the, God's design for marriage is far greater than any of those objections can stand that God's design for marriage will blast holes in each and every one of those self-centered, self-serving objections to marriage in this world. And so I want us to do that by looking into Genesis chapter two. And, and basically what I wanna do for us this morning is to kind of look at this story about the first marriage being told in verses 18 through 25. And then I want us to compare that to the ultimate marriage that is the relationship shared between Christ and his church And then I want to draw some conclusions, some challenges out of that for the meaning of our marriages in terms of how are we going to view marriage? How are we going to approach marriage? How are we going to engage this thing called marriage in our lives or or celebrate it in the lives of others or whatever the case may be? Let's look first at the first marriage. And as you look at verses 18 through 25, this is essentially what's going down. We are being cued into the first wedding ceremony, the first marriage, so to speak, which is an interesting dynamic because this is happening at the very beginning of the Bible. A marriage is taking place. Then when you get to the end of the Bible, what's taking place? Another marriage, the wedding supper of the Lamb. So marriage is very, very, very important to God. But then when you look at this story, what do you see? You see three characters at work here and just give you a profile of each one. You see a portrait of the selfless father. 
You're going to see a portrait of the sacrificial groom. And you're going to see a portrait of the suitable bride. Look first at the selfless father. The selfless father is the one who knows what's best for human flourishing. Look at verse 18. It says, then the Lord God, that is the redeeming, the, the creator, redeemer God, the big and close God, the Lord God said this, it is not good that the man should be alone. And that is a striking statement for God to make at that moment because the cadence of creation up till now has been all good. Everything that has happened, God has declared it good. Everything that, God, that has happened, God has summarized it as very good. This is the first negative statement mentioned in the beginning of the Bible. And it's a negative statement that says it is not good that the man should be alone. Now understand that this is God's assessment for Adam. This isn't Adam's assessment. He didn't come to this conclusion on his own. It seems that he might later, which is why I think the Lord God would parade these animals before him to name and to call and to start exercising dominion there in the Garden of Eden. And, but, and as he's doing that, he discovers that there's not really another creature on the planet like me. Uh, there's no compatibility between me and any of these creatures. And so maybe, maybe he's unsurfacing that need in Adam. But the first person to notice it and the first person to voice it is God himself. He says, it is not good that man should be alone. Even in paradise, loneliness was a terrible thing. And notice what God did. Notice what God does to, to remedy that situation. You see the selflessness of the Father, the selflessness of God, the Creator and Redeemer, when God then takes steps to make, to give man a person other than himself. And that may surprise us because you might think Adam's in Eden with God. Aren't his relationship, isn't his relational capacity maxed out? Doesn't he have who he really needs in this world? He has God. Does he really need anybody else? And here you begin to see the selflessness of the father who's giving man a person other than himself. It's as though God is saying, look, I've designed you in my image with such an intense relational capacity capacity that your relational capacity needs not needs to be satisfied not just on the vertical plane between you and your creator but on the horizontal plane between you and other human beings so in selflessness and humility God says I'm going to give you a person other than myself I'm going to make a woman a suitable bride for you mother teresa back in the day took a tour of the united states and as she did, she kind of insulted a lot of Americans when she told people the reason she was taking this tour through our country wasn't for publicity. It wasn't a publicity tour. It was actually a ministry tour. And the reason why she said it was a ministry tour, uh, or the fact that she said it was a ministry tour, offended every, a lot of folks. They said, what are you talking about ministry? We don't have any needs in our country. Don't you come from India? And aren't you serving in India amongst deep poverty and a lot of physical needs? I, they need you over there. We don't need you over here. And so in a press conference, she was asked the question, what needs in the United States could you possibly meet? One word answer, loneliness. She said, the hunger for human love in the world is the world's worst ill. People all over the world are suffering more from loneliness than from poverty. Than from poverty. So the ministry to which she was engaging with was one to showcase, look, there is a need deep within every human being, a need of loneliness that needs satisfying. And yes, our, our loneliness can be satisfied by God himself. 
But God intends far more for us to flourish. He doesn't just want to give us himself. He wants to give us other human beings, a horizontal satisfaction of our relational desire and of our hunger for friendship and companionship and intimate relationships. Now, here in Genesis chapter 2, God will satisfy that need by giving Adam a wife. But we know that the remedy to loneliness isn't marriage. The remedy for loneliness cannot be marriage because there are a lot of lonely people in marriages. What's needed isn't a marriage. What's needed is intimacy. What's needed is a meaningful relationship. And when you trace the storyline of the Bible all the way into the Gospels and the New Testament, how does God account for loneliness within the human condition? Well, he gives people himself in Christ, but then he gives his people to each other in the church. He says, look, loneliness can be satisfied. Intimate, meaningful relationships can be had amongst my people. This is how I desired you, designed you. This is how I wired you. This is why we're not going to say that if you're not married, you're an incomplete human being. This is why we would never tell a single person, you need to get married if you're really going to flourish in this world. No, we don't need marriage for that purpose. We need horizontal relationships that are intimate and meaningful. And those relationships are found in the church. So although we're talking about marriage this morning, I don't want any single person among us to think that they're getting the short end of the stick on this deal. No, God has given you the church and you have been given to the church. And in the community of faith, we can have intimacy. We can have meaningful relationships. We can see the dignity of our singleness. Did you know that Christianity is the only religion in the world that was started by a single person? Jesus lived his entire life single satisfied with his father, loving his disciples, engaging in intimate, meaningful relationships. So that's essentially what is needed for human flourishing. is isn't simply marriage, although marriage is very good. It's a good gift, but not, we can't just say marriage is going rem, to remedy our problem with loneliness. What we need is intimacy and meaning. And this is what God is going to provide Adam with by giving him Eve or giving him a wife. So here you see the selflessness of the father, knowing what's best for human flourishing and then giving man a person other than himself. But then notice the sacrificial groom. In this moment, as this need is coming to surface, you look at verse 21. You see the sacrificial groom here, actually right before then it says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. There was no corresponding creature to him. There was no one who could, who could do for him what God designed him to do, that we need interpersonal relationships with other human beings, not just pets, so to speak, right? A pet is good, but a pet can't do this. And so what does he do? He then causes the man to go into a deep sleep. He causes a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And you see the sacrificial groom here in the sense that he is being acted upon by the Lord God. The Lord God is the actor in every verb in this passage. He's the one doing things. Man is passive. He is being acted upon. The Lord God is causing a deep sleep to come upon him. And what's interesting about that word sleep, when you read through the book of Genesis, you come to a point where God establishes a covenant relationship with Abraham. And in order to ratify that covenant, to say, look, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to bless you and you're going to bless others. What does he do? He causes a deep sleep, the same language, to come upon Adam. A deep sleep to form a covenantal relationship between him and Abraham and between him and what he's going to do in the world. Well, that's essentially what he's doing here. God is creating a covenantal relationship to be shared between Adam and this bride who will be given to him. So he causes a deep sleep to come upon him. But not only does he act upon him in that way, he cuts him open. He cuts him open. It says in verse 21 that 
a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs or something from his side. The language there is kind of hard to translate. And closed up its place with its flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. So not only did he act upon him, causing him to go to sleep, he cuts him open. And again, when you get to the story of Abraham, God forming a covenant, what's he doing? He puts Adam to sleep and then he cuts some stuff open. He doesn't cut Abraham, but he cuts his sacrifice. But something is being cut open. Blood is being shed so this relationship could be formed between God and his people. Hold on to that imagery. Hold on to that language. But then after, while he's sleeping, he takes this rib from the side and he, and he forms a woman. And then notice this beautiful picture at the end of verse 22. The sacrificial dream is acted upon. He is cut open. And then at the end, he is given a wife. And what you find at the end of verse 22 is that God is bringing the wife to the man. He is walking the bride down the aisle. He's giving her away. I performed a wedding for Jen Simpson a couple weeks ago, our minister of global engagement. And her father walked her down the aisle and gave her to the groom. And this is essentially what you're seeing go down here. It's a wonderful picture of the father of the bride walking her down the aisle, so to speak, giving the sacrificial groom a bride, a wife. And what is his response in verse 23? He sings, right? He busts out in song, a Shakespearean sonnet. Poetry starts to flow from him. Guys, you don't think you have it in you. I think you do if you get this going on. He's so inspired, he starts writing poetry. And so he says, this is at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The words for woman and man are very, they sound, they're, they, they sound very similar in the Hebrew language. And so he's playing off of that rhythm. He's playing off of that rhyme. He's, he's writing a song. He's, sing, he's, he's found his muse, so to speak. His muse has been given to him in the bride and he starts singing a song. Why is he so excited? But he's finally found a creature that is suitable, a suitable fit for him. So let's think about the suitable bride. You have the selfless father, the sacrificial groom, but then here you have the suitable bride. Just think about the woman. There's a few things we can say about the suitable bride that's inspiring this song from Adam in this moment. One of which is we can say with absolute certainty, she is her husband's equal. That this bride given to the groom is her husband's equal. No other creature on the planet was on his level, but this person is. This woman is. Matthew Henry would put it best when he says, you know, the woman was not made out of man's head to top him, nor was she made out of his feet to be trampled upon by him. No, she was made out of his side to be equal with him. This suitable bride is her husband's equal. But not only is she his equal in the sense that she, they share sameness in their humanity. They say, share sameness in the fact that they both were created in the image of God as we learned in Genesis chapter 1. We also learn a second thing about this suitable bride is that she is her husband's complement. She is her husband's complement. And we see this in the language used. When you look back and you see that word fit or your word in your translations may say suitable. That word fit, that word suitable, it literally means that this woman stands like opposite to Adam. They are similar but distinct. She is his like opposite. They are similar in the sense that they come out of the same box, so to speak, right? God formed man from the dust and from man, he took the woman. So there's sameness there. And so there's a suitable fit 
between the woman and the man. It's kind of like puzzle pieces. You know, puzzle pieces are like opposites of each other, meaning in order for a puzzle piece to fit another puzzle piece, they cannot be exactly the same. There needs to be some difference. There needs to be some distinction. But the sameness is found in the sense that they do fit together. They do go together. They are rightly different, so to speak. And so if you take puzzle pieces out of one box and you try to apply them to puzzle pieces in another box, it's not going to work. Why? Because they're, they're, they're different, but they're not like different. They got to come out of the same box. This is essentially what the language of fit and suitable is getting after in Hebrews chapter, or Genesis chapter 2, saying man and woman, Adam and Eve, are like opposites. They're not identical, but they're similar. And they, and they are rightly different, so to speak. They fit together. So he's finding a suitable mate, one who's sexually compatible with him, one who is socially compatible with him. It's this fitness that exists between male and female in Genesis chapter 2. But then there's another word that speaks to this woman as a compliment. And it's a word that may cause some people to, sh uh, to kind of shrink back because we kind of impose our experiences and our understandings of language onto the language of the Bible. And that causes us to misread the Bible. And so when you read a word like helper, what does it mean for God to make a helper suitable for Adam? It's a frustrating word for so many because we think helper in our culture and we're like, okay, well, that's like, a, that's like an assistant. It's like Alfred the butler in Batman, right? It's somebody who's walking behind us a couple of steps just with a notepad, jotting all our notes down, keeping our schedules, assisting us in this world from behind and, and uh, helping us in that way. But understand, when, we, when it comes to formulating our worldview, and understanding what God designed and intended for marriage, we cannot impose upon our understanding of the scriptures from outside of the scriptures. Meaning we have to understand what, is the language, what did the language mean in the Bible and let that inform and give shape to our understanding of, of anything. And so to refer to a woman or the wife as helper in this chapter, it's not a demeaning description. It is a dignifying description. It is a noble description and the reason why we can say that is because that word helper, helper is used about 16 times in the Old Testament, all in reference to God's activity. And it all comes in context when God has to come through for his people because his people are about to be crushed. So there is a, there's a dignity to this helper image. There's a military dynamic that the person who's coming to help is strong. The person who's coming to help is not weak are not weaker than the one being helped, but strong. And in some instances, stronger than the one who is being attacked or the one who is being harmed or the one who is not flourishing in a given moment. So the word helper here is used of God aiding his people. I'll give you a couple of examples. Psalm 20, verse two, where the psalmist writes, may God send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. Psalm 121, verse two, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth that God is my helper. God is the helper of his people. God is, provides necessary support to his people that without God, his people will flounder in this world rather than flourish. And there's a sense in which in Genesis chapter two, if we're not understanding the dignity of that word help and we're not embracing, it's the power behind it and the dignity in it, recognizing that the wife in Genesis 2 is a nece provides necessary support to the, to the groom, to the husband. If we don't get that, our marriages are going to flounder. 
Because men are going to belittle, husbands are going to belittle their wives. They're not going to respect their wives as they ought. They're not going to love their wives as they ought. They're not going to see their wives' strengths and power as, as something you need in order for your family to flourish, something you need in order to be what God brought you together to be. And so what you have here is this picture of a, the wife being her husband's equal, the wife being her husband's complement, that there is an enormous strength there. There's a sameness there with profound differences. And so in marriage, two people who are equal in value but different in, in many ways are brought together and they're thrown into as close of a relationship as you can get. This is what Adam's song is getting after in verse 23. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The language there is like she and her husband are being united. They are becoming one flesh. And all of a sudden we begin to see that marriage isn't a social contract that requires authorization from the government. Marriage is a covenantal relationship. It is one where a man and a woman step into a union together and they declare to one another, I am yours and you are mine. I am yours and you are mine. That is essentially what a man and a woman say to one another in marriage. And so this monogamous union of two equal but distinct sexes become the paradigm for marriage in, according to our origin story. Now, as you read through the rest of the Old Testament, after the fall, you're going to see a lot of distortions of marriage. You're going to see a lot of distortions of relationships all across the board. One of the distortions you will see in the Old Testament, and sometimes this question is raised, which is why I want to address it now, but they'll say, well, doesn't the Bible affirm polygamy? Didn't husbands have many wives? Why are you talking about monogamy? Why, why, why do you have to go there? And, and to that, if somebody ever brings that up in a conversation about what marriage is and, and what the Bible has to say about marriage, this, that, and the other, understand that just because the Bible describes a practice does not mean it endorses a practice. The Bible describes the world as it was in the Old Testament. And there was a lot of distortion in the world in the Old Testament. But just because the Bible describes a practice doesn't mean that God desires that practice or intended that practice. This is why when you get to the Gospels, when Jesus brings up the topic of marriage, where does he go? He doesn't go just to the Old Testament. He goes all the way back to Eden. Every time he talks about marriage, it's Genesis chapter two, Genesis chapter two. The apostle Paul, same thing. Every time he talks about marriage, where does it go? He goes all the way back to our origins, all the way back to Genesis two. So as those of us who are in a covenantal relationship with this God who follow Jesus and are trusting in the scriptures, our understanding of God's design for marriage must come from Eden, not from the described practices in the Old Testament. So just because polygamy was practiced doesn't mean it was endorsed or designed or intended by God. That's a distortion of what God originally created. Everything about us must come back to Eden. Eden provides the blueprint for all of our relationships, including our marriages. And so Genesis chapter two, in that sense, is very subversive. When it was first written, it was written to subvert the common cultural practices in antiquity. And still today, what Genesis chapter two talks about as it relates to marriage, it is a subversive text. And if you and I are gonna be faithful to the scriptures in our culture today, we must recognize that this passage will subvert common cultural assumptions, common cultural practices about marriage today. But again, our understanding of marriage can't come from our culture, regardless of how it shifts and changes and redefines marriage and does all those things. We have to come all the way back to Eden and hear 
the blueprint, the original design that God intended marriage to be. So here you have the first marriage in Genesis chapter two, a monogamous covenantal relationship shared between two equal but distinct sexes. That's the first marriage. And, and what I want you to think about now is I want you to think about the ultimate marriage. Because we said earlier that marriage was designed by God to illustrate the gospel, that it's supposed to point to our ultimate marriage, the relationship shared between Christ and his church. So let's think, about, think through this grid together, the ultimate marriage. In the ultimate marriage, there is a selfless father, right? The selfless father who knows what's needed for human flourishing. The selfless father who even anticipates what's needed for human flourishing in Genesis chapter 3. When sin enter the, enters the world and things get sideways, what does he say in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15? Listen to what he says to the woman. You remember, the woman was provided to be a helper. Here's how ultimately she's going to help. She's going to give birth to a seed. And that seed is going to be the Savior. That Savior then is going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to conquer sin and Satan and death. He's going to right all that is wrong in the world. Where's this Savior coming from? Well, he's coming from the seed of the woman, the helper, the one who's powerful and strong, who, who God gives to the world something that the world does not have, gives to the world something that the world desperately needs in, other, in order to flourish. Again, the word helper in Genesis 2 is a super important, dignifying word. So he knows what's needed for human to flourishing. That's why he makes that promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between, talking to the serpent, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The language there is a lot more forceful than that. He shall crush your head. You may wound him, but he's going to strike you down. What happens on the cross? The seed is wounded, but the serpent is crushed. He's conquered. So you have the selfless father knowing what's needed for human flourishing. And then what does he do? He gives his only son to the world. The selfless father who gives his only son to the world. John chapter 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his unique son, the one and, other, the one and only son to the world. And he gave his son to the world so that whoever would believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. So that they might flourish he knows what's needed and he's selfless in his activity. So he gives his son who is a part of himself. He, he is the son of God. And so he gives his son to the world in selflessness and humility and grace. But then notice the sacrificial groom because this son would be the sacrificial groom, right? This sacrificial groom who lived his life deferring to the will of his father. And in that sense, he was acted upon all the days of his life. He didn't call the shots. He says as much in John 6, 38. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I'm gonna be acted upon all the days of my life. He's deferring to the will of the Father, even though the will of the Father intends for him to be crushed on the cross. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord for him to be crucified. But yet Jesus continued to obey Philippians chapter two, verse eight. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He deferred to the will of his father, sacrificial groom, giving himself to his father's purpose. And then what happens on the cross? He's cut open, right? He is cut open on the cross. So much so that you get to John chapter 19, verse 37. What happens? But these soldiers take a spear and they thrust it where? They thrust it into his side. And from his side comes blood and water. 
The same blood that Jesus referred to earlier as the sign of the covenant or the seal of the covenant when he's hanging with his disciples before going to the cross. He says, look, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna shed my blood. I'm gonna form a new covenant, a new relationship you will have with your God. I'm gonna redeem you, I'm gonna refine you, I'm gonna save you. And it's gonna come because I was cut open on the cross. There was a hymn called, There's a Fount Filled by Blood, and it articulates this well. There is a fount filled with blood. It flows from Jesus' side. And I have plunged my guilty soul beneath its cleansing tide. That's what's happening. He's being cut open on the cross to form a new covenant so that we might be forgiven and cleansed, be brought back into a right relationship with God. But then what happens in that third component, the third component, the sacrificial groom, is then given the church. What's his award for deferring to the Father? What's his award for being cut open on the cross? It's the gift of his bride. It's the gift of the church. And you might think, no, I've been a part of churches and that's not a very pretty gift, right? She's not a very attractive bride and I know we're, we're not right, but we're being made right. And still God would see us as this gift as he gives the church to Jesus. That's John 17, six would put it explicitly. Jesus prays, I have manifested your name, referring to his father, to the people whom what? The people you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. In other words, every Christian has been escorted down the aisle by the Heavenly Father. As the Heavenly Father has brought every Christian down the aisle to give him or her to Jesus. Saying, look, here is your bride. This is the church. The church is the people that you have claimed through your death on the cross. And the church is the people that the Father is bringing to Jesus and saying, here, have your bride. It's the sacrificial It's the sacrificial groom. It's the beauty of the gospel. And then next, you notice the suitable bride, right? You have the suitable bride. We don't feel very suitable because we know how dysfunctional churches can be. We know that we're not right in many ways, that we stumble and bumble through life in a fallen world. So how are we made a suitable bride? Well, think about this. In Genesis chapter two, verse 24, God, uh, it says, therefore, A man, and here's the language, shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So you have a rhythm there in verse 24 in reference to marriage, leaving and cleaving, leaving and holding fast, turning from one relationship and stepping into a new unique relationship, leaving and cleaving. Therefore, marriage, that in marriage, we establish a new, a unique relationship. We're entering into a relationship with another person that will transcend and trump my relationship with any other human being in the world. We're leaving and cleaving. What does Jesus call you to do as a disciple of Christ? What does Jesus call you to do in the gospel? Luke chapter 9, verse 26. Listen to what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Strange words, right? What is he saying? He's saying in order to be my disciple, you got to leave and cleave. We hold fast to Christ in our salvation. We hold fast to Christ in our faith. We leave, we repent, we turn from that which had characterized our lives before Jesus. And we cleave, we hold fast to Christ so that our relationship with Christ now transcends every other relationship. Our obedience to Jesus trumps our obedience to any other person on the planet. We have a unique relationship with Christ as we are holding fast to him, leaving and cleaving. That's what it means to become a Christian. That's how we become a part of the suitable bride is we leave and we cleave. We hold fast to Christ. 
And the beauty of the gospel is as we hold fast to Christ, we are then united with Christ. His life becomes our life. His death becomes our death. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. We become one flesh, so to speak, with Christ. We are his bride. This is why all throughout the New Testament, how are Christians described? As people who are in Christ. You've been deposited into Christ. He is yours. You are his. It's a unique relationship. There's union there. There's intimacy. There's meaning there. There's personal passion to be found in Christ. And then as you're stepping into Jesus and you find yourself united with him, what's going down in you, but you are now being transformed by Christ. We believe that relationships change us. And a relationship with Jesus undoubtedly changes us. So when we step into Christ, we become a suitable bride who's being cleansed, who's being renewed, who's being washed. This is the language of Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, listen to what Jesus says he's doing for those who are united with him. It starts in verse 25 when the appeal is to husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he, referring to Jesus, might sanctify her, referring to the church having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ right now is transforming his bride. Perhaps one of the reasons some of you haven't yet put your faith in the gospel and become a Christian is because you're so opposed to the church because you look at the church and all you see is problems in the real time. You don't see the potential of who the church is becoming because you're not looking at the church through the lens of the gospel. You see, the gospel declares that we need Jesus. We are sinners and we aren't, we haven't fully arrived in our salvation in the sense that we're not fully redeemed in the sense that we are practically righteous and practically holy and practically pure and practically sanctified in all of our thoughts and all of our deeds and all of our affections. So what's going down in us is that Christ is at work transforming us and renewing us. He's washing us. He's cleansing us. He's applying the gospel to us day in and day out. We are all works in progress. So when you look at the church, don't see the church as she is in a given moment. See the church as who she's becoming, as who God declares she will be, this holy, pure, blameless people who are not only positionally right, but practically right in every conceivable way. That's who we're becoming. This is what makes us a suitable bride. A suitable bride is the work of Christ within us. Now, what is all this? What is the first marriage and the ultimate marriage? What does it have to say about the meaning of our marriages? What does this mean for you and I as we kind of live between these two marriages, as we kind of live in the now? And so I want to just, here's where I really want to lay out some challenges, but I want you to understand that these challenges that I'm about to give you, they must be received in light of everything that I've just said about the ultimate marriage. If you do not know the ultimate marriage, you do not stand a chance of your marriage serving this purpose and accomplishing this meaning. Because listen to what this means for our marriage. Again, the, the passages are listed there. It's Ephesians chapter 5. This is where Paul applies Genesis chapter 2 to the church. And he talks directly to wives and he talks directly to husbands. And he lays out the meaning of our marriages in the here and now. And so first and foremost, this means that God designed marriage to illustrate his gospel. This is how we are to understand the meaning of marriage. It is designed to illustrate his gospel. Marriage isn't simply for you. 
We do not get married because we have relational needs or relational desires. That's not entirely why the Christian should get married. We want to get married because of this meaning right here, because marriage serves to illustrate the gospel. There is a purpose in your marriage that is far greater than you realize. And that purpose isn't just about providing you with a sexual partner. And that purpose isn't just about gratifying your desires for to, to know and to be known. No, the purpose, the deepest design for marriage is for your relationship between a husband and a wife to illustrate the gospel, to magnify the gospel, to go forth with the gospel. And here's how we can do this. You look down at verse 25 of Ephesians chapter 5. Again, this is in your notes. Husbands, here's your charge. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her and cleanse, and having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, here's the comparison, husbands, you should love your wives as, your, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. In other words, husbands, you are to provide a picture of Christ to the watching world. The way that you love your wives, or the way that you hope to love your wife one day if you're a single man, is to provide a picture of Christ to the world. This means you're going to love her sacrificially. You're going to love your wife sacrificially. You're going to give yourself and of yourself to your wife. There's a great picture of this given by Wayne Grudem, who in his own life, Wayne Grudem, some of you may have heard that name. He's a prominent, world-renowned theologian. And for about 20 years, he taught at Trinity University, which is one of the most prestigious seminaries in the world, occupying a wonderful position of influence and really power as he was writing books and teaching and discipling many, many future church leaders. But the problem in Grudem's life was that that seminary, that school is located in Chicago and Chicago has a very cold climate which caused a problem for his wife. His wife suffered from a disease which gave pain to many of her muscle groups. It's a disease, I can't pronounce it, I won't try, but there's really no known cure for this particular disease. And so she had a hard time thriving or flourishing in life. She couldn't walk upstairs, she couldn't do ordinary household chores and work. But then one day, Grudem and his wife had some friends invite them to Mesa, Arizona for vacation. And while they were there, they learned that the warm, dry climate was much more helpful to her condition. And after a few trips together, they began to do things that they had not done prior to that moment in years. They, they rode bikes together for the first time in 12 years. And it got to the point where Grudem said, you know, I would like to move here, but there are no seminaries here. What would I teach? Well, he comes from Trinity, a major seminary in the world. And so he opens up the phone book and he starts flipping through the yellow pages and he comes across an advertisement for this little obscure school called Phoenix Seminary. Not many people had heard of Phoenix Seminary at that time. And so he found the number in the yellow pages. He calls it up and he asks, hey, I'm Wayne Grudem. I'm looking for a position. The person on the other end of the line laughed. <laughs> this is a joke. You're, you're kidding us, right? He says, no, I'm, I'm really looking for a position. I would like to move to Mesa, but I want to continue teaching. And his wife didn't really want him to make that sacrifice. She wanted to stay in Chicago so that he continued doing what he was doing. But and after much prayer and after much thought, Grudem said that he began to ponder the implications of Ephesians 5, 28, love your wife as your own body. 
And he said, if I were suffering like Margaret, would I not want to move for the sake of my health? And the answer is absolute, ob the obvious answer was yes. Loving his wife sacrificially, that he would sacrifice prestige, he would sacrifice a prominent position of influence in order to love and to care for his bride. Husbands, you showcase, you show the world a picture of Christ by loving your wife sacrificially. But then you go one step further, not only loving her sacrificially so that you're giving things up for her, you are serving her constantly. Nobody outserves Jesus, right? No person in this church will ever outserve Jesus. Jesus always outserves the church. So husbands, you showcase a picture of Christ to the world when you serve your wife constantly, when you serve your wife ceaselessly, when you outserve her all the days of her life, serving your wife. So I would ask, is your wife more like Christ because she's married to you? Is she more like Christ because she's married to you or is she more like Christ despite of you? I hope and I pray, husbands, that as we are taking in the gospel and thinking about this dynamic of marriage, that she will be made to be more like Christ because of you and not despite of you because you're loving her sacrificially and serving her constantly. So the charge to husbands in Ephesians chapter five is high. And it is from there that we wanna to listen to the charge to wives in Ephesians chapter five. If you jump up in verse 22, listen to what's said. Wives, here's some language that, again, in our culture, this is not positive language. We don't like this language, but bear with us. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, don't get it twisted. Uh, when it talks about Christ being the savior of the church, that doesn't mean the husband is the savior of the wife. Guys, you may be strong, but you're not that strong. You may be good, but you're not that good. You are not your wife's savior. And wives, don't expect your husbands to be your savior. The only savior of us all is Jesus, the head of the church. And so together we look to him for salvation. So what does this mean then? It means, one, that wives should provide a picture of the church to the world. That's the analogy. That's the mirroring. Husbands are compared to Christ in the passage. Wives are compared to the church in the passage. So wives, you're to provide a picture of the church to the world. This means, one, you are to submit to your husband's Christ-like servant leadership. Submit. You're to submit to his Christ-like servant leadership. Let him love you sacrificially. Let him serve you constantly. Submit to his Christ-like servant leadership. Now, I put that qualifier in there for a reason. Because you look at the end of verse 24 and it says, wives, you should submit in everything to their husbands. And that raises red flags. In everything, do I submit to abuse? Do I submit to sin? Am I supposed to submit to foolishness when my husband's being an idiot? And I don't think we're supposed to take that in that way. And the reason is because the submission is qualified. It's qualified by what? You read further back in the verse. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to your husbands. Does, the church, does Christ ever abuse his church? Does Christ ever lead the church in a foolish direction? Does Christ ever neglect his bride? Does Christ ever sin against his bride? No. So in everything there, I think, is qualified by that dynamic. You submit in everything, meaning in everything that reflects Christ-like servant leadership. You don't submit to abuse. You don't submit to sin. You don't submit to folly. You submit to Christ-like 
servant leadership. That's where submission becomes a glad, willing thing from our wives. But again, this bleeds into it. It's produced by the husband's sacrificial service to the wife and then she's submitting in this way and all of a sudden you get wonderful synergy. The husband's loving his wife like Christ loves the church. And the wife is submitting to the husband in ways that would showcase the church to the world and you have this synergy of love and submission, of sacrifice and submission, a beautiful symmetry, a beautiful union is created. So you submit to your wives, your husband's Christ-like servant leadership, and then you learn to honor your husband above any other person. This is how you showcase the church to the world is by honoring your husband above any other person. No other man should occupy your thoughts. No other man should occupy your emotions. No other man should be looked to to do for you what your husband is supposed to be doing for you. So wise, you showcase the church to the world when you honor him above any other person on the planet, outside of Jesus, of course. This is how I think. Why, husbands, you show a picture of Christ. Wives, you can show a picture of the church to the world. And this is, very, this is a high calling. This is a noble purpose. This is one that you and I cannot possibly do. Our sin is too present. Life in this world is too hard. So in order to get here, what we must begin doing together is take the gospel in. You must think the gospel through and then turn the gospel out. You take it in by believing the gospel, trusting God's good design for marriage, thinking it through. How does the gospel impact how I'm interfacing with my husband or my wife in this moment, in this situation? How is the gospel forming my responses and, and activities with him or her. But then you begin to turn it out as you're thinking it through and you begin to see the gospel pulls me in this direction. So you start going in that direction. The gospel declares this direction. So you start going in that direction. You take the gospel in, you think it through and you turn it out. That's the only hope for you and I to ever get close to fulfilling the meaning of marriage in light of the first marriage of Genesis 2, and the ultimate marriage between Christ and his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace now as we reflect upon these truths and as we think about them. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us to grow in light of your design for marriage. Help us to grow in light of the ultimate marriage that we are all a part of in Christ. Thank you for loving us so well. Thank you for sacrificing for us for serving us, and I pray that your sacrifice and your service would accomplish its purpose in our lives. God, we need you in this moment, and we're asking for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.